Well, good morning. Before we look to God's Word together, I want to begin by giving you the most recent update regarding our ministry. As most of you know, I was approached late last year by Berean Mission Church to pastor there. And I would potentially be co-laboring with a very good friend of mine from college at what is a young church plant. Uh, As I've shared on several occasions, my initial answer was no, because we had no intention of leaving whatsoever. Um, But it wasn't until after the holidays in which we received much counsel from pastors and family and talking with the elders here, and we began praying uh, much about this ourselves. God opened our hearts to this opportunity, and we felt that God was leading us in this direction. And so in January, we made what was one of the most difficult decisions as we pursued this opportunity. You know how much that I love you. You are our family. And I've been with you for almost eight years now, and, and you have made just this time so good for us. But we know and we strongly believe that it's not about being comfortable. It's about being where God calls us to go. It's about doing his work. It's about the kingdom of God. We saw that there was a greater opportunity for gospel work to be done there at that church and to help build up this young church of believers at Berean and to come alongside a friend in need in the process. And so for the last three months, I've been candidating there, and I finished the last of my responsibilities this past week, and the members officially voted me in. And so we praise God for that, and if there needed to be any more confirmation that this is where God wants us, this was it. And we gave them our decision a few days ago to move forward, and beginning tomorrow, I will be pastor of Green Mission Church. Uh, And even as I say it, it it sounds so weird. Uh, It really is surreal. Uh, And with the busyness of everything, it hasn't quite settled in yet. So all that to say that this is my last Sunday here as pastor of San Francisco Bible Church, and I'll get to share a little bit more with you at our surprise (laughs) send-off. I I was uh, CC'd on the email in the initial (laughs) planning stages, but uh, it's totally cool. I'm going to act surprised, okay? Uh, Such a nice gesture, but... I just want to begin by just saying uh, just thank you. Thank you, church, for just making it a joy to be your pastor for the last seven years and eight months. It has been a privilege to shepherd you, to serve you, and to preach God's word to you week in and week out. And I shared this at last service. I especially thank Pastor Henry because I have reaped the fruits of this man's labor that our brother and pastor has has made it so easy for me to preach because I preach from a pulpit where the Bible has been taught faithfully week in and week out, and I do it to a people who love God's word. This is a grace that I don't deserve. And so I thank you, church, for receiving the word as you've done over the years. And I say with the Apostle John that my, my greatest joy is that I see you walking in truth. And I see that in your life that is more than just about hearing the word, but it's about you wanting to live it out. 
So, uh, I will miss you dearly, and um, I will miss standing here uh, each week opening the scriptures to you. But even as I share that this morning, uh, this isn't about me. It's not about us moving on. It isn't about SFEC. It's about Christ. And I have the privilege once again to point you to him through his word. And so I invite for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Our text is found in verses 22 to verse 33. And when I was thinking about what to preach on, I was drawn to this story. And as I began reflecting on it, it ministered to my heart. And I believe that it will for you as well this morning. So I want to go over this familiar story with you and begin by reading for us the text of God's Word. And so if you would, please stand with me at the reading of God's Word in reverence and honor of it. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. This is the Word of God. Immediately he made the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word now, and we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would minister to each and every heart that is here, that you would show us more of Christ, and that, Lord, that we would be more like your Son in the process. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in this time. Speak through me this weak and imperfect, this frail vessel, and use me, Lord, to proclaim your word pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For the last two years, I've been going through the Gospel of Mark with you. And the question really was why? Why the Gospels in particular? And early on, I shared with you a quote from J.C. Rowell that really captured my heart for why we were in the study. We were. And I want to share that with you again this morning. And this is what J.C. Rowell writes. He says, quote, 
It would be well if Christians studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable. It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, and to behold his beauty. The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. End quote. And that's been my hope for the last few years in this Gospel account. That we have seen Christ. That we have beheld his beauty. That we have met with our Savior. And that we've been changed in this process. And as I was thinking what to preach on for you this last Sunday, I realized I just want to leave you with Christ. To tell you of who he is and what he has done. This story is one of the most well-known and beloved stories in the church. We grow up learning Sunday school lessons about it. And about Peter walking on water. And so much is made of him and his faith and how we can learn from his life. But we end up approaching this story like we do a picture, don't we? Where so often we look for ourselves initially. And it happens in every group picture. right? It doesn't matter if it's a church retreat photograph of 200 of us. We always look for ourselves first. And then we look for Pokey in the picture. Our tendency is to come before God's word in the same manner. To look for ourselves in this passage. And we ask, where am I in this story? How does this relate to me? What does this mean for my life? See, the impulse of our hearts is to come before God's word with us in mind. But this does not serve us well. Because the Bible wasn't written with us in mind. But with God in mind first. This story is no exception While so much is made about Peter and lessons about faith for us, this account is first and foremost a story about Jesus. And so we look with spiritual eyes this morning and we see Christ here. And only then do we take a second look. Can we rightly see that we are in the picture after all? That we are in the background to the king who is front and center in this account. In this story, Matthew is attempting to reveal truths about the identity of Christ. And he points out three specific things about Jesus in this account. And the first is this, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. This point is subtle. And it's more implicit than it is explicit in the text, but it's significant nevertheless. 
And it's found in the context of the events that happen right before verse 22 and following. The great purpose of Matthew's gospel and for which he writes is to show that Jesus Christ is Israel's long-awaited king who has come to set up his kingdom on earth. But for the better part of three decades, Jesus lived as a sort of veiled king. The sovereign of the universe who walked amongst his people, walked unrecognized, hidden and yet in plain sight. But up to this point for the last two years, the light of who he is begins to break forth to the surface. For two years up to this point, Jesus had been revealing that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the King who has come with the promised kingdom. For two years, he had been demonstrating that truth with his authority, with mighty works, with powerful words. And as people began to see this, they followed him with great hope that their king has come. And in verse 19, all of this great anticipation regarding Christ would be brought to a culmination in his miracle of the feeding of 5,000, as has been known. A number that was actually closer to 20,000, some 30,000, including women and children. You know the story, with five loaves and two fish, Jesus created enough food for this to feed tens of thousands of people. In fact, it was enough for them to eat and be satisfied, we're told in verse 20. This was a monumental, vast, and most far-reaching miracle that Jesus has ever performed. Over 20,000 people were fed. And it wasn't just that they saw it happen. They are experiencing it. They are eating the food and getting their fill. They are partaking in this great miracle. It would be at this point that Jesus' popularity reaches a crescendo. For two years, his ministry had been on the rise and he had been proclaiming and healing and casting out demons. But this excitement has come to a climax. There was a fever pitch among the people as they saw the power and the wisdom and the compassion of this man, this Jesus of Nazareth that they've been following. They thought that this was the one who they've been waiting for. And so John tells us that in his gospel, that at this moment, they were going to make Jesus their king, it says, by force. They were going to press this crown upon him right then and there. And they would be for him. And they would follow him. See, they wanted Jesus to be the sort of military king. Jesus would be the one, they thought, to deliver them from Rome. And this feeding of the multitudes fed this idea. Because when they saw his might, they knew their military leader had come onto the scene. They were saying, this is the king. This is the one who will overthrow our oppressors, who will provide for all our needs. This is the one who can lead us to defeat our enemy. Jesus, we want you to be our king and we will go with you and we will be under your rule. And you can imagine the excitement of the apostles who are with him. They were thinking, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for all along. 
The people finally recognize that Jesus is the king. They've seen his works, and they're now going to crown him as king, and this mighty kingdom will be set up. Their hopes had reached the highest point, and it looked like it was going to happen, that our Lord had done it, that he had won the people, and he now had 20,000-plus people at his disposal. But Jesus knew their hearts. And he knew that the kind of king the people were looking for had nothing to do with the kind of kingdom he had come to bring. And so what does Jesus do? This brings us to our text. In verse 22, immediately, he made the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. See, Jesus did not want his disciples to be further caught up in this messianic expectation. He knew his disciples wanted this. And so Jesus acts immediately and he acts decisively to distance his disciples from this scene lest they get caught up in the fervor of the crowds. And he literally makes, he forces his disciples onto the boat and commands them to sail across to the other side of the sea. And then having done so, Jesus calms the crowds and he dismisses them. And he withdraws from them. You can imagine in that little rowboat, as the disciples were pushing their way out to sea, they must have been incredibly disillusioned, confused, and disappointed at what just happened trying to understand how Jesus could spend two years getting to this point, and when it was within his grasp, he pushes it away. Yeah, what they didn't understand was our Lord's kingdom was not of this world. He didn't come to bring the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. His kingdom was not the, the kind of kingdom the people had in mind. The fact of the matter is, his kingdom was in a little boat in the middle of the sea. That's where the seeds of his kingdom were. It was among his disciples. And his disciples and the people just didn't recognize it. With this decisive act, Jesus refused the kingdom they had offered. He would not be made a political leader on their terms. For he comes not as a military king, but as a suffering servant. And so he sends his disciples away from all of this. But note that Jesus himself had to get away from all of this as well. Because we're told in verse 23 that after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This miracle that day had only added to the pressure of the popularity to make him an illegitimate king. So Jesus had to withdraw. And some believe the reason why is because this prospect of being made king and having this kingdom became a very real temptation for our Lord. I know we often don't think about that. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that our Lord was like us and tempted in every way, but without sin. Because we've seen this before. 
This was not unlike the temptation of Satan in Matthew 4, where he sets Jesus on the top of the mountain and he showed him the kingdoms of the world and its glory and said, all this I will give you if you bow down to me. Yet in God's great plan, he makes a promise that the one true king would come from the line of David and would one day receive an everlasting kingdom. Jesus would come as a fulfillment of this promise. This kingdom would be given to him, but it would come through the path of suffering. God willed that for Christ, the cross must come before glory, humiliation before exaltation. Jesus had to first fulfill his mission as the suffering servant of Israel and to die for our sin on the cross. But now Satan offers the Lord the kingdom without having to pay such a price. He offered all glory without suffering. And now here was the same temptation in Matthew 14 to have the kingdom without the cross. But not at the hands of Satan, but of the people. Jesus could have had his moment of triumph. He could have had an army at his command. And they could have marched into Jerusalem and conquered Rome. And he would be beloved by the people. But he knew that this would be short-lived. And he knew that this wasn't the sort of kingdom he needed to bring. To overcome this temptation, our Lord is an example of what we need to do in our weakness. And it is to be in communion with our Lord, with the Father. It is no coincidence that on several occasions in the Gospels, when Jesus goes off to pray, he's either facing the suffering to come, but also on the heels of his greatest triumphs. If you remember in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when the Lord had his first real taste of success and fame, and the people from all over Galilee were coming to him, the Lord had to go off and pray. Because he had to remain resolute in the mission for which he was sent. Jesus had to regularly remind himself that he comes as the suffering servant. That he was here to please the Father and not the crowds. That it was his will be done. That the cross must come before the crown. The temptation was Jesus could have set up the kingdom there in Galilee... For the people to enter. But it would not have been the sort of kingdom that sinners could enter for all of eternity. So Jesus chose to withdraw. And he would choose to suffer, die, and resurrect. That we might be saved into his kingdom when we put our trust in him. The truth of the matter is that Jesus' kingdom was unlike any other. Jesus himself knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be by defeating the enemy, but to be defeated by the enemy, by dying and rising from the dead for our sin. Edmund Clowney, he said this, he says, quote, that he would go to Jerusalem Not to wield the spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear 
and bear the judgment. So our Lord sent his disciples away and he fled from the crowd. And it is a lesson for us. The crowds had different expectations for who Jesus is and what he came to do. They didn't know what sort of king Jesus came to be. And the Lord is revealing to us that he is not a sort of king of our own making. He comes not to fulfill what we want, but in fact what we need. Jesus comes as a suffering servant, not as a military king. But secondly, we see from this account that Jesus is also presented to us as God incarnate. That Jesus is God incarnate. Look at verse 23. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Having withdrawn from the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, and the scene immediately shifts back to the disciples. They've been sent away by the Lord to the other side, but we're told that as they attempt to reach their destination, they've made little progress, as they're still a long way away from land. And the reason for this is that they've encountered a storm that's impeded their progress. It's not a life-threatening storm. It's not, a, it's not similar to the one in Mark 4, but the wind is formidable. Their boat is being beat by the waves, Matthew tells us. The rowing is painful. In the NIV, it says that they were straining at the oars. The straining, this word here, is, is rendered as torment. These disciples were experiencing pain and frustration, and they were agonizing as they rode amidst the storm. And this went on for hours into the night. We're told by Mark that Jesus was coming down from the mountain, and he looked out to the sea, and from a distance, he could see his disciples painfully making headways. And so in verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 in the morning, as our Lord sees these men struggling, he came to them. But how? There was no boat. The disciples had taken their only boat. He came to them by walking on the sea. The language Matthew uses here in the text leaves no doubt about what he is saying. He's saying Jesus walked literally on the top of the water. He is above the surface of the sea. He is walking on water. Some of us have tried to explain this miracle away naturally, saying that this was maybe some optical illusion. See, but these fishermen have grown up on this lake. This is their livelihood, and they know what they see. They would not be fooled. Others have said that Jesus is actually on the shore, or that he is on some sandbar. But the text tells us they are in the middle of the sea. They are not confused by what is happening. This is nothing short of an absolute miracle. And I need to emphasize that this is a historical event, not just some story. It actually happened. It is real. 
Jesus is walking on the sea, not under it, not wading through it, but on it. No human does this. And I know that we've all tried to some extent. The closest that we may get is maybe able to run. We might be able to run fast over water. Some of you may be able to water ski barefoot. You may be able to skate on ice, but you can't walk on water. And we know this. At times, we've become so familiar with this story that we fail to recognize the significance of what's going on. See, this is more than just a casual stroll on the sea. This isn't like Jesus saying, well, I missed my boat. I haven't created Uber yet, and so I'm just going to walk. I'm just going to walk on the water and go to my disciples. There is more going on. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, just one book over. Mark chapter 6. And in Mark 6, Mark makes a comment that helps us understand what's going on here. In Mark chapter 6, in verse 48, this is the commentary that he makes. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Have you ever noticed that phrase before? Isn't that a little odd? What does that mean? Did he just sort of want to sneak by? Was he just trying to mess with his disciples? Did Jesus want to just come around and, boo, Peter, I got you. You know, like, is this what he's trying to do? Play games with his disciples? No. This phrase is an echo from the scriptures. This language is familiar language from the Old Testament. It is a phrase that is associated with God's revelation of himself. Commentator Donald English says this, quote, one remarkable miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is followed by an even more astounding one. And the phrase he meant to pass him by, that phrase is a deliberate identification with how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Mark is informing us that this miracle of Jesus walking on the sea is the manifestation of the transcendent Lord who will pass by the disciples just as God passed by one named Moses. End quote. Do you remember... One of the most significant events in the history of Israel is Moses' exchange with the Lord in Exodus 33. And there Moses, he tells the Lord, Lord, please show me your glory. And this is how God responds in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And in chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him. When God showed himself, his glory is always spoken of as passing by. And there's an even greater parallel found in Job chapter 9. Job says this, that it is in verse 8, God, that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Does that sound familiar? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. In this context, Job describes the transcendence of God. God can do what humanity cannot do and can never conceive of doing. He moves mountains, he shakes the earth, and he tramples on the waves of the sea. It is the glory of the transcendent one that passes by Job, just as the glory of God passed by Moses. Do you see, Jesus is coming to his disciples in the same manner. He is doing what only God can do as he walks on the water that night. And just as God who passed by Moses and Job, Jesus is passing by the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. He is displaying the glory of the transcendent one to these disciples. But what Moses only saw in part, when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, He does something different from the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He intends to make the mysterious God of Moses and Job visible as they had not been and could never have been to former generations. What saints of old could not behold, Jesus passes by them as he tramples upon waves of the sea and his disciples will behold. This is what happened on the Sea of Galilee that night. Christ was God in the flesh. But his divine nature was masked and hidden by the sort of veil of his humanity. Sometimes his divine nature showed through. There were moments when Jesus' deity burst through the veil and became manifest to those around. And that's what happened on this occasion Cloaked in mortality, veiled in humanity, Jesus did what no human being could possibly do. He strode across the sea. And in the middle of their distress, they looked up and saw the glory of God passing by. The glory of the Lord shining out of the Son of God himself. But these disciples didn't immediately recognize That they were seeing the glory of God. You go back to Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 14. And it tells us this in verse 26. That when the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified. And said it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. See they knew they, they must have been seeing something supernatural. They thought that Jesus was a ghost. And can we really blame them? 
I mean, what would you think? You're in a boat, there's a storm, and then there's someone walking on the water. None of us have really seen a ghost, but none of us have really seen our shepherds walk on the water either, right? So you imagine if if it was you in that moment, it's either one of two things. Pastor Henry is walking on the water, or it's a ghost. Both seem highly unlikely, but a ghost seems more likely than a suspended pastor on the waters, So we can't fault them for their reaction. It was the more reasonable answer. But it says that these guys are terrified. So much so that they cry out in fear. It's interesting because they weren't terrified before by the storm or the wind. But this sight of Jesus walking on the water was what terrified them, and they cried out in fear. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus reassured them by identifying himself. You imagine the disciples took comfort in hearing the voice of the Lord. But it was hearing what he said that was significant. He says, it is I. This little statement is once again rich in meaning. One of the most well-known features of the Gospel of John is the record of Jesus' I am statements. And I know that ETC has just finished their study in the Gospel of John, so you know this. But Jesus repeatedly uses metaphors for himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And so on and so on. Each time Jesus said, I am, he was using a unique combination of Greek words, which were ego and me. Both the words ego and a me means I am. So it's as if Jesus was saying, I am, I am. But this same phrase was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the Septuagint to render the sacred name of God in Exodus 3, where our Lord from the burning bush declared to Moses, I am who I am. And from that point, that became the unutterable, sacred, holy name of God. Matthew here is recording his own I am statement found here in this story. And Jesus is unmistakably identifying himself with God. It is identical with God's self-disclosure to Moses. And this serves once again to demonstrate that Christ was the sovereign Lord. For in walking on the water toward his disciples, Jesus walks where only God can walk. But now he talks only as God can talk. Jesus shows that he is the eternal God. But he is also telling us this as well. Our Lord is God Incarnate. There was a third and final truth about Christ found in this passage, and it's that Jesus is our Savior. 
Jesus is our Savior. And we find it in verse 28. That upon hearing and upon seeing the Lord and hearing his voice, Peter, being Peter, impulsively responds. And this is what he says in verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I want you to see that Peter's response was not arrogant. It was not showy. He was not trying to show off. In fact, Peter's response was instinctive. It was an act of faith. And this was the opposite of fear, which he and all the other disciples had moments ago. What Peter is doing here was an act of recognition. He saw that it was his Lord. In fact, the word if should be translated since. Since it is you, Lord, let me come to you. The Lord Jesus had evoked recognition in Peter. And Peter was devoted to Christ. He loved our Lord. And he wanted to come to him. You say what you will about Peter, but where Jesus was, Peter wanted to be also. This request was an act of faith. Peter was utterly dependent on the authority and the power of Jesus. He knew that only Christ could enable him to come to him. And that apart from Christ granting, he would not be able to do so. So in verse 29, our Lord said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. This is a beautiful picture of what saving faith is. Peter had the incredible experience of literally walking on water, defying gravity and buoyancy, but his experience didn't last long because it says that he saw the wind and the waves in the storm and he grew afraid and began to sink. Notice that as long as Peter's focus is on the Lord Jesus, he is upheld. And it has been a timeless lesson Drawn from this text for believers of needing to keep our eyes on Jesus amidst life. As long as Peter was directing his vision toward his master, he could walk on water. But in that moment, his eyes turned from the Lord into the circumstances around him. The wind and the waves, seeing that he is in the middle of the storm, it is then that he begins to sink. The Lord is teaching us something about how faith works here. See, it is not the strength of faith that saves us, but it is the object of faith that saves us, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ that saves. And when our focus is taken off of him, our faith falters. As Peter becomes more aware of his circumstances and as a result less aware of Christ, he begins to sink into doubt and he cries out to our Lord. Do you see how Peter in so many ways, 
He represents all of us. Jesus calls us out upon the waters. We follow him. And we find that we seem to be doing so well beyond what we can imagine. Our faith appears to be so strong until the storms come. When we look at the obstacles that we face and the threats that confront us, rather than look to Jesus, we begin to look at all these other things and our hearts begin to sink. Our confidence wanes. We begin to fall. And in that moment, Peter is an example of what we must do. He cries out what? He cries out, Lord, save me. He responds to his desperate situation and turns to the Lord for help. And it is this cry that is the most important cry that any person can make in this world. There's something to be said of the gospel and of saving faith here. For the Bible depicts for us man's situation in this story. That in our sin, we have made shipwreck of our lives. We are sinking and we are in fact perishing to an eternal hell. That is your condition and mine. And our only hope is to cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus will not refuse. He will not refuse those who call upon his name. Peter cries out. And it says that Jesus at once stretched out his hand and took hold of him. You notice That Jesus, as with all his miracles, could have rescued Peter by simply giving a word. But he shows that he extends his strong arm of salvation to sinners. And this imagery becomes so much more vivid to us. The Lord Jesus pulls Peter out of the waves just as he does with us in our salvation. The Lord, he pulls Peter up with these words. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, if our faith is grounded in our circumstances, it will always be like Peter's faith at that moment. Going up and going down, depending on how your circumstances are, But if our faith is on the proper object, the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be constant. Why? Because He is constant. He is faithful. He is good. And He never changes. He is the Savior who saves us time and again and again. See, I want you to understand something here. See, this account is not primarily about faith The moral of the story is not that Peter's failure is because he took his eyes off of Jesus. But it's that Peter's failure doesn't matter because Jesus didn't take his eyes off of him. See, this story is all about Christ. This is about when we don't look at Christ and he still saves. 
the Lord will still see us from the distance. And he loves us. And he will help us in our time of need because he is the echo of me. He is the I am. And as it was in times before, in the days of old, the I am saves his people. Jesus reached out his hand and he caught Peter and he catches sinners. And yes, there are lessons learned about needing to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. That we need to look full in his wonderful face. But the accent is on Christ and what he does When, not if, but when we take our eyes off of him. He never takes his eyes off of us. Our Lord keeps his eyes on us, even when ours are not on him. You may recall this is the second time that Jesus rescued his disciples during a storm at sea. Both times, Peter uses the same words, Lord, save me. And both times, Jesus responds similarly, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then here, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's failure in faith comes as no shock to Jesus, and nor does yours. And it will fail. But just as Peter was sinking He calls out to Jesus, save me. And Jesus immediately saves. I want you to know that this is where the Lord wants every one of us to be. To come to the end of ourselves. To have us realize that all we have is Christ. And he is all we need. And he is all that will satisfy You notice Jesus reached down and he lifted Peter up. And then they got into the boat together. But it doesn't say that Jesus picked him up and carried him on his back and into the boat. That means that Peter walked, Peter sunk, but Peter got up on the water and they walked back with Jesus to the boat. Sometimes we miss that. The two of them proceeded into the boat And it says at that point the wind ceased. And then Matthew ends the story with the effect that all of this had on the rest of the disciples. The experience of seeing Jesus walk on water and of saving Peter elicited this response in verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him. Saying truly you are the son of God. This incident had a profound effect on them. And it caused them to do the only thing they knew to do. It's to worship Jesus. To confess that what all this meant on that night on the Sea of Galilee was that Jesus, you truly are the Son of God. This is what I leave with you, church family, the Son of God. It is to show you Jesus time and again. It is a a bittersweet day for me 
sad to leave, but excited for this new chapter. And I recognize that this is a step of faith for all of us. And yet I'm reminded that there will be uncertainty in this season. And while there will be ups and downs, we look not to our circumstances that change, but we look to Christ who is constant, Christ who is faithful, Christ who is good. We look to Christ who is all we need. And I look forward to how the Lord will continue to build up his church here in the seasons and the years to come. And how Christ will show more of himself to you. And I just impress to you, as I've tried to impress you these last seven plus years, love Jesus. Make much of Christ. And let this life be all about him. This is my prayer for you. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. The one to whom we look again to this morning. The one who is able and powerful and mighty. Who comes to his people in the time of their need. And in fact, Lord, we know, came in the darkest of night who saw us in our helpless estate and suffered and died in our place that we might then know your grace. And it is the cross that reminds us time and again that you are the one that we need to look to amidst the uncertainties of life. And there is much uncertainty to come. And at times, Lord, we know that you lead us to situations where we will move into the unknown you will bring us to the end of the rope and remind us once again that you've been there all along. Lord, our response is like that of the disciples. It is to bow at the feet of Jesus. It is to worship Christ because he is worthy of all our praise. It is to be reminded, Lord, that we are to follow you, that we are to trust you. We are to go where you will have us go. But Lord, that you will give us grace for the path that you set. And so, Lord, we thank you again for this morning for allowing us to see Christ again, to meet with him. And let us, Lord, walk away from here, saying with our lives that Jesus is all. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.